This is actually the piece of nature that's been entrusted to you as an individual. You may not control a piece of the Amazon, or you may not own a beachfront or a piece of the ocean that you need to go clean up. But you own these food scraps. You bought them. They belong to you now. This is The Butterfly Effect, a podcast that shows the big impact a small action can do. Tali Urat is talking to those special people that make a difference with nature and trees. Welcome, everyone, to The Butterfly Effect. My name is Tali Orad. I'm your host and your butterfly here. Today, I am very excited to have Josh Whitten on the show. Josh creates participatory movements that empower people worldwide to directly contribute to planetary repair. At the age of 23, he founded a tech startup that got people out of the cars and onto public transit, creating jobs while reducing fossil fuel emission and the carbon footprint of millions. For his positive impact on the planet and people, Josh was named a champion of change by then U.S. President Barack Obama. Josh also co-founded one of the first urban farms in the southeastern United States. Still in operation today, the One Acre Urban Farm helps thousands of people each year to participate in a more beautiful food system. Josh's latest planetary intervention is Make Soil. Welcome, Josh, to the Butterfly Effect. Thank you, Tali, for having me. Glad to be here. Maybe we can start with learning a bit more of your latest initiative. Can you share more about what is Make Soil? Make Soil is a global movement of people literally making soil together out of mm -hmm. their food scraps and yard scraps, which most of the world still doesn't know is an opportunity or a possibility. So the Make Soil platform matches neighborhood soil makers who love to compost and make, make new soil out of food scraps with mm -hmm. neighbors who have food scraps. So it's kind of a decentralized network for people doing this beautiful thing together. That's wonderful. What made you start that? I have been looking for ways to help make the world a better place at a systemic level. A few years ago when I was eyeing my next project, I was asking myself, how do I have the biggest impact in the world that I can? That I can? Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, all these grandiose ideas come at first. You want to be having rockets do acrobatic things and land like Elon Musk or something. And then <laughs> the more I thought about it, I couldn't get it out of my head that uh, worldwide food waste, which is also just the planet and full of nutrients and energy, are going to garbage dumps around the world constantly. Right. And it's, it's just one of those things that it doesn't make any sense. It needs to stop. And so I began thinking of, of ways to solve the problem, even though cities have been struggling with this issue for decades and trying to, trying to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And sort of my sweet spot is finding solutions that have been overlooked that are totally possible if you just add all the elements together. And so what I eventually realized was that there were millions of people worldwide who knew how to compost and were composting, and, and they were surrounded by neighbors who would love to donate their food scraps. But culturally, it's not something that is ever done. Neighbors almost never think to go invite other neighbors to bring their food scraps to their backyard. And so to share garbage. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> and even and even re reframing that, if you don't mind, because right now, 
yeah, people see, they see garbage, but in the future, we won't see garbage, right? We'll see just matter that needs to be reconfigured. So right now, it's a very, it's a very primitive time, actually, in that sense. I'm sure you've heard before, there is no away. We try to throw things away. There's no away. There's just a planet that it ends up on, right? And what are we throwing away? It's just pieces of the planet that we've yanked out of the ground or melted into different forms. And uh, they contain energy. And in the case of food scraps, they contain nutrients and energy. So we're really helping people to realize that that's not really garbage at all. It's just nutrients and energy. While you can't recycle aluminum or plastic in your backyard, you can certainly turn this food energy back into soil and then to grow new food. So we're changing that perception all over the world. You're focusing on communities versus the individuals in in that process. Why do you think that's going to make a difference? For several reasons. Governments have been trying to focus on individuals for years, like saying you should compost or start composting today, or maybe they even give out compost bins to people. But for an individual to begin actually composting and learning the process, it is a learning experience. It's kind of like, almost like brewing beer or making wine or something like that. There's a real process, there's a real recipe involved. And so it's a very high bar to say to every person, do you have the space? Do you have the time? Do you have the interest to perform this process? That's only gotten so much traction because for many people, the answer is no. And for many people, the answer is, why would I even bother? They don't, they don't even know that it's a thing worth doing. Right. The question of how does it make sense in community, it almost only makes sense in community. If one person takes the time to learn all of that and knows how to make soil and become what we call a soil maker, mm-hmm. then there's no need for every person around them to learn the whole process from start to finish and to have a place to do it because each person who is composting can actually absorb the food scraps of maybe a dozen or more neighbors around them depending on how good their technique is in a fairly small area as well so it's just something that works better as a as a community as a network effect mm-hmm. as an opportunity with different roles and responsibilities you need lots of uh, lots of players in different niches participating together and so that's what we figured out. And now the neighbors are soil supporters. The person hosting the soil site is a soil maker, and they come together and do this beautiful thing together. And the soil sites are private locations or public location? How does it work? Again, just like nature, there's, it's the diversity that we're after here. So in some cases, there are cities who have put their drop sites on the map. In other cases, in most cases, they are individuals or households who open up their compost bin to their neighbors and list it on Make Soil. And there's different privacy controls and things there to make sure that uh, everybody's comfortable with who's visiting their compost bin and that they don't get overwhelmed with like 100 people or something if they can't handle it, right? So there's, there's right. capacity controls and all this stuff. And there's also community gardens and businesses and really anyone who just says, wow, I would actually love to help keep food scraps out of the garbage. I know how to compost where I'm willing to learn. And so, yeah, let's set a, let's set a, a bin up here for people to drop their scraps off at. And they end up with beautiful living soil. They very likely end up with new friends <laughs> and neighbors who they have now a way more beautiful relationship with than they had before and a more resilient neighborhood than they had before. And in the case of businesses, they might end up with new uh, customers who share their, their values because they're hosting a soil site. Yeah. And where do you find most communities implementing that? 
in the Middle East in Dubai, we have lots of soil sites there because one passionate person found out about it from a friend who emailed her in the United States. We also see a lot in the Philippines right now. And then, of course, all over the U.S. uh, primarily. But the U.S. is so big that there's a lot of space in between these soil sites still that we still need to fill in. So I've been composting for years. It's funny, I really resonated when you say on, on doing it by yourself. And I was telling that to people. Everybody's like, yeah, I really want to do it, but it's, it's smelly. The animals will come. I don't have the place for that. And I'm privileged enough to live in a town that now in the past two years, the town offer composting and... One of the things that I, I learned is, as opposed to compost by myself, when I compost with the town, there is the ability to add the compostable bags, the cooking leftovers. So if, I don't know, I made rotisserie chicken, right, the bones I can throw in versus I couldn't do that before. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on, on that? The reason these kind of rumors started spreading that there were things you couldn't compost is just because almost nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> so it's like, if almost nobody knew how to brew beer, then cities would start saying, look, don't put grains and hops in a bucket because it's going to stink. You know, but if people right. know what they're doing, then you can, you can put in a lot of interesting things, actually. So part of it is just that humanity is very new at this whole process. We're very young at teaming up with microbes, actually. It also depends on the technique. So if a person is just doing like a worm bin in their Manhattan apartment, that cannot handle every kind of input that you put into it, right? If a Mm -hmm. person is doing hot composting, you can put almost anything in there if if you can really get the temperatures up. And then there's all kinds of other methods, okashi and, and whatnot. So we really encourage all of them. And we really encourage people to learn about all of them and really find the one that suits them. Okay. And then um, if anybody's listening and wants to dig in more and learn, is there a place they can go to? Oh, absolutely. Makesoil.org. Okay. Perfect. So today's economy grows and and expand by consuming and, and without harming our planet. You mentioned that before. Obviously, consuming less will help, but definitely reusing, recycling, and of course, composting. Um, we've all become so dependent on on the econ- economy that we seem powerless when something like a pandemic hit. It's hard to deal with that, and it's hard when we're out of control, and it's also hard for us to change because we're completely disconnected from Mother Earth, and the butterfly effect we try to reconnect again, um, or at least bring people just like yourself to to show that we can. And we forget that far more important to our survival than the economy is nature. So I'm just interested to hear your thoughts about it. You touched a little bit, but I'm sure you have more to say. There's lots of us. We're very influential. Mm-hmm. Whether we're famous or whether we're just consumers, we're still very influential in the world. And almost nobody knows how a planet works. And so we have to change that. And it's hard to even go to school and find out how the planet works. So it's really a time for technology and economy and nature to be harmonized. And 
I guess more to your point, along along the along the line, we forgot that our survival depends on the biosphere, depends on nature directly. When we were hunter gatherers, that was very obvious, right? The the animals, the plants, right. they were there was a very direct dependence there. But now everything ha- happens somewhere else, right? Everything happens on a farm somewhere, ends up on a store shelf, magically, and the disconnect is just massive. So it's a good time for all of us to start remembering that our lives do depend on the biosphere. Every activity we love doing requires a working biosphere. Right. And actually that we've never found another working biosphere anywhere in the universe. So I love that picture of Earth in space, you know, that's taken from space and shows the planet hanging there because that picture is only about 60 years old. And before that, we could only imagine what our situation was. And now we can actually see what our situation is. We're, we're on a planet that is the only living planet we've ever discovered. It has a thin wisp of atmosphere that allows all of this to happen. And we're surrounded by completely dead planets. And once you see that that's our situation, it just changes, it changes the way we think in our priorities and helps us understand what our situation is. So I'm going to challenge you a little bit because I can see what you're describing and I'm sure our listeners do too. But one thing I'm concerned is once they stop listening, they forget, okay, that's great. It's, yeah, we, we are the only planet. This is our only world. We all know that. But we need practical advice. What will your advice be for somebody that says, okay, I want to take it to the next level. I'm not just going to listen and, and be passive. I'm going to, I want to change. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Like we need to actually make a change and do something that sticks. And so people all the time come to me with ideas or mostly concerns about the state of the planet, the state of society, the state of nature, and they don't know what to do and they're frustrated or they're just going to suppress it and forget and go back to whatever they were doing. Mm-hmm. I say to these people and I ask everyone listening, like, are you currently composting your food scraps? And why does that matter? That matters because this is actually the piece of nature that's been entrusted to you as an individual. So you may not control a piece of the Amazon or you may not own a beachfront or a piece of the ocean that you need to go clean up, but you own these food scraps. You bought them. They belong to you now. And this is the piece of nature that you own. And so start by stewarding this piece of nature back into the earth. Learn how to regenerate the earth with this piece of nature that you do control. And I find that if people do that, then it starts to stick. And the reason it starts to stick is because the mind actually updates very quickly when we have feedback loops. And if there's no feedback loop, the mind really struggles to update. And this is the problem with climate change and all kinds of things. The feedback loop is so long that it's very hard for us to understand that our actions have any consequences. Mm-hmm. Contrast that when, with touching a hot stove when you're a child. You, know, you do that once, and the feedback is so quick, and it's so painful, it's so strong. You don't need to read an essay or you don't need to watch a documentary about not touching hot stoves. Right, right. Yeah, the feedback is just there. And so once people start making soil like this, they actually watch the planet repair itself. They actually participate in the Earth's regeneration. And for, for most people, this is the first regenerative experience they have ever 
had. So when a person instead takes these food scraps, takes them to a neighbor's soil site, watches the earth repair itself, mm-hmm. also gets to see themselves participating in the earth's repair, which is something they generally haven't experienced before, and also sees the diversity of things being put in there from themselves, from their neighbors, is reminded how much life it takes to actually keep them alive when you when you dump your food scraps in a soil site, you see that, gosh, it took a lot of other life to keep me alive and that this has come at some cost to the planet and and something beautiful needs to happen with these remains. So I find that it really transforms people's mentality and leads to them making changes in in many areas of their life. Even the career they have, the career they choose in the future, it just has this cascading effect. And then what's been done with the compost that is created or the, the soil, right? <laughs> Why do you say Com- uh, soil yeah. versus compost. Can you maybe... <laughs> I say soil because part of why composting hasn't become mainstream is because it's confusing. And so if we... <laughs> so in other words, a person will refer... They'll tell me they have compost. And I won't know if they mean they have finished compost, they have some banana peels and coffee grounds that need to be composted, or they have a bin out back, right? I, it's so ambiguous what, they're <laughs> what right. they even mean. And really... I think we should just call it soil, and that's what we do, because yes, there's many kinds of soil, but when you take these food scraps and put them through this process, you end up with humic matter and minerals. And so that humus is is a major component of soil. It is soil. There's a lot of different words for it. Geologists will argue with me that I shouldn't call it soil, because soil is something that requires millions of years to form with all kinds of degradation of rock and this and that. And I, I say to them, okay, if you want to do that, you can be right on, in some pedantic way, or we can save the planet and get billions of people to fall in love with creating soil. Which one do you want? So <laughs> that's the one I'm going for. And then if you call it soil, then you also get to say fun things like, I'm a soil maker. Become a soil maker, right? That's just right. way more fun than, hey, you should be composting. Okay. It's all in the PR. I got it. Okay. So what do we do with the soil after... It was created. From what we've seen, people giving the soil away, people planting in their own backyards, people participating in their garden. And there's this concern people have that they're going to end up with this avalanche of soil in their backyard and it's going to like tip over and cover their house or something. And no, there's no giant pile of soil. <laughs> like the compression uh, of and the reduction in volume of what happens is so is so significant that you're really left with a fraction of what you put in there. You're left with a tenth or the twentieth of the volume of what you put in there because so much of what you put in there was moisture. Yeah. If you have any yard or bushes or anything, you can just toss it under there. It goes back into the ground. The bushes and trees will be even healthier. As you said that, I'm thinking, oh my God, the raccoons will just find that and then that's it. So Yeah, no, you're, <laughs> you're not throwing food into the garden. You're throwing finished soil into the garden. That's, that's part of the point of this whole thing is if you just bury food scraps, you end up generally not creating soil. You end up creating bugs or, <laughs> or animals. Yes. So, yeah. Okay. So maybe we should go through like the process of, okay, yep. so we need a bin and... Well, let's stop right there. You need the appropriate bin. Okay. So people say to me, what's the perfect compost bin? And, and I'll say, well, what kind of pests are you dealing with? I've lived in places where there were no raccoons. And so we didn't have to fortify the container all that much, right? 
And in other places, there weren't any rats or mice or anything because I don't know there were too many cats or something. Right. So it's really it's really just first understanding what are the local sort of quote pests in your area that need to be considered, and then you find a pest-proof bin for your situation. Mm-hmm. Other places. They don't have a bin at all. They have a giant pile of wood chips. They bury the food scraps really deep. It gets really hot. Nothing messes with it. So everything is very context dependent. Right. But let's just, let's just reframe that and say we now have our context appropriate pest proof bin. So we've got that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we're going to need a source of carbon matter like leaves or sawdust, wood chips or mm-hmm. cocoa hulls or walnut shells or just you know paper towels, whatever. But just like stuff that is not high in nitrogen, stuff that would never really rot. That's what you're looking for. You need a, you need a good supply of that. Because you're going to mix that in with the food scraps every time they're deposited. Mm-hmm. And if you do that in the right ratio, then it's not going to smell and it's going to get pretty hot. And the microbes, the right microbes are going to wake up and they're going to start the process of turning all this beautiful, colorful stuff back into dark, nourishing soil. I live in New York and during the fall season, there's plenty of fallen leaves. Plenty. Actually, you cannot find the ground. <laughs> and they are actually collected, which sometimes I don't understand because I think they're very important yes. to the soil, but that's, that's for different discussion. So I can take those leaves and put them in my bin and then on top of that, dump all my food scraps. So banana peels, eggshells, rotten tomatoes, um, whatever, yes. right? Do I need to do anything In addition, let's back up a minute and say that when those leaves are so abundant in the fall time, come summertime, we find people are saying, I'm out of leaves. I shouldn't have had the city take them all away. Now I'm struggling to find (laughs) any leaves for my compost. So the first lesson here is that they are a resource. They're not a they're not another type of garbage. They're a resource. They're captured carbon, really. Right. Yeah. Tally, I I kid you not that. It's been so long since most of us learned about photosynthesis in whatever, fourth grade earth science, that most people, maybe this is changing, but I think right now still most people forget that those leaves are captured carbon, that somehow that is the same CO2 that the United Nations has been complaining about and that scientists are supposed to be figuring out how to solve and so on. Like It's so disconnected, all that conversation about CO2, that when people see wood chips or leaves, or a paper towel, they really aren't making the connection that a plant has captured the carbon for them and turned it into this stable carbon polymer chain. (laughs) And so those leaves are the captured carbon, folks. That's what the stuff we're looking for. That's what it looks like when it's been captured. And we want to lock that into the soil. So you save that up, save that up in a corner of the yard, save that up in its own bin. It is going to be a resource and it's, and it's going to be hard to come by in the middle of the summertime. So that's the first thing that needs to change. Then you're going to put the right amount of that with each deposit of food scraps. So that's why you can't just fill up your compost bin with leaves and then add food scraps for the next six months. You have to kind of add a little bit of each at a time. And then you also want to make sure that there's getting enough moisture in there and also airflow. And again, that's part of the structure of the bin and also some technique, either turning it or even just fluffing it with a garden fork or poking it with a stick. But you're just introducing air into it every once in a while to ensure that it doesn't turn anaerobic because rotting is not soil making. We want to actually make soil, not create methane. These are two different directions, two different microbial processes. 
So there's a recipe. It's easy to learn, actually. And so when I say that most people don't know what they're doing, it's not because it's difficult. It's because they're working off of zero knowledge and zero education. So it's a very low educational bar to have to meet, but it's not zero. <laughs> and so the good news is everybody listening <laughs> is 10 minutes of YouTube videos away from really being close to knowing what they're doing. It's something you can endlessly perfect and try new techniques and get it faster and hotter and more microbial diversity. And there's all these different metrics you can optimize, but the basics are out there and they're, they're pretty intuitive. So I encourage folks to check out those uh, educational materials. And how long, by the way, until we get this oil? This is like the question of how long does it take to cook a meal? There's meals that you could make in three minutes and there's meals that you could make in three hours. And it's a different process. It's a different quality of, of output. And there are people who have made finished compost in 16 days, but they monitored the temperature, they turned it frequently, and that's very rare, but that can be done. Is there an advantage of composting in a warm country versus a cold country? Can it even be done in a cold country? It can be done in a cold country because the microbes produce the heat. So another misconception is people will go up to a compost bin and they'll feel all this heat coming off of it. And they'll think that it's because it's been sitting in the sun. Mm -hmm. And really it's the microbes and their metabolism that's causing all of this heat. If you get the process going when it's not sub-zero, then you can actually keep it quite warm even through the wintertime. So it's pretty common to, even in a snowy place, be able to go out to the compost bin You know, dig around for a little bit and find that it's 90 degrees in the center of it. Okay, so assume we got our new soil. If we want to use it to in our garden, can we get a bin and just dump the soil in and grow vegetables and, and other things? Or do we need to mix it with our with the soil we get at Home Depot or whatever, no, right? No, it, it can be planted indirectly in most cases. You really are left with soil. This goes back to also, though, the question of how long does it take. So when I said that in theory and in practice, people have done it in 16 days, something more like three months is more reasonable. Mm -hmm. The longer you allow it to process and rest, the more suitable it is for direct planting in, the more soil-like it is, so to speak. Uh, and the less time that you uh, use that process, the more like a fertilizer that it is that should be added to existing soil. We all know that trees are the best solution for carbon emission. And one thing, and I, I recently did another episode about that with a, an expert. If you guys are interested, look for episode with Pedro Brancaleon. One thing we discussed there is that the soil actually absorbs much more carbon than we know of and sometimes more even than the trees. So I truly appreciate what you're saying on, on creating it and bringing it back to the soil to absorb all the carbon. Yes, that's, you know, you said everybody knows that trees are the best solution. And first of all, I'd say, well, I don't think everybody knows. That's why you still have your work cut out for you. <laughs> and, <laughs> and people know even less that the soil is also a massive carbon sink. So I have my work cut out for me too. And that's living soil that is, is doing that. And so when we, when we create this soil in our yards, you end up with living soil. That's why it's 
hot, you know, it's full of life. And it's even when it's cooled down, it's still full of life. And that's very different than dead soil. So dead soil isn't going to sequester any carbon anytime soon. But if you take this new finished living soil that you've created and spread it uh, onto a, a pasture, for instance, there are start sequestering carbon it just goes way up. It starts doing it sort of automatically because it's the life in the soil that starts having an economy of sorts that requires carbon. So yes, that's, that's very little known and that's living soil. And again, almost nobody today thinks of living soil versus dead soil because they haven't encountered it. And if you think of our modern lives, we mostly touch plastic, metal, and glass throughout the course of a day. And that's why you feel so good when you go into your yard and touch the plants and put your hands in the soil because we evolved in contact with, with living nature is that we're not in contact with the living earth. And so we begin to feel alone and isolated and so on. So speaking of soil and tree, what is your favorite tree? Gosh, I knew you were going to ask this and I have, I have several and I'm, I was trying to <laughs> figure out if I could choose one or the other. Avocado has to be one of my favorites because it's all trees have their place, but wow, that is one that I have had one in the backyard at times. And it's just a miracle to reach up into the tree, pick out an avocado, have it with my lunch and feel so fed and satisfied because I've just gotten a truly substantial amount of calories into my body from this tree that has assembled it from mostly from the air, mostly from carbon and kept alive by soil under its roots. So, Wow. Thank you, Josh, for, for educating us on, on soil. I'll leave all the information in the footnotes so you guys can check it out. So thank you. It was wonderful chatting with you. It was a pleasure, Tally. Thanks for having me. And thank you, everyone, for joining me today. We are all beautiful butterflies, each in his and her individual ways. I wanted to thank you for joining me today in this episode. I really appreciate you coming on this journey with me and I hope you can join me next time. And remember, it only takes a small action to make a big difference. Be a butterfly. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for joining us today. Please subscribe to hear more of our stories of change. 